As we get started, let me, let me ask you a, a personal question, so to speak, to be thinking about, and then we'll explain it a little bit, and then we'll see how it connects to what James is, is saying this morning. And here's the question. How does it feel to you? So this is personal, not theoretical. How does it feel to you when you realize that you've been forgotten by someone? You know what it feels like to be criticized. That stings, that, that hurts. The more I was thinking about it, I, I began to think that a more painful emotion to experience in life is the realization of being forgotten. So imagine maybe there's been a moment in your life or a time in your life when loved ones or friends, family, somebody have, have planned an event, I don't know, a party, a celebration or something, and you weren't blacklisted from the party. You hadn't specifically offended or hurt anyone in particular that you would go, oh, well, there's no way I'm going to that. But you find out down the line that parties or events or whatever it was occurred and, and you were simply forgotten. No one was mad at you, offended by you. You just, in the planning of the party, didn't seem to matter. How does it feel? How has it felt? Can you begin to connect in your mind and in your heart and in your experience in this life what it feels like to actually be forgotten? Here's something that's true of all of us. You and I, we, we are not characterized by, we don't tend to have a proclivity to or a tendency to forget the things that matter most to us. You can connect with the emotion of what it feels like to be forgotten, but if you're human, you can also connect to the reality that when it comes to what matters most to us, we're generally not characterized by forgetting those things. The prophet Jeremiah speaks to this a little bit in Jeremiah chapter two. He says, does a young woman forget her jewelry or a bride her wedding dress? That's the most human of examples, isn't it? Have you ever been to a wedding where the music started to play and everybody stood up and the doors opened and the bride came down the aisle, bouquet in her hand, veil over her face, makeup done to a T, but she left her dress in the dressing room? Jeans and a t-shirt and flip-flops, completely forgetting the white dress that took countless months and hours of conversation and exploration and fitting for that very day? Have you ever been to a wedding where the bride simply forgot the dress? You, you never will because it matters. It's important to her. And so the prophet Jeremiah, being as, as honest and as real as he could possibly be, says, can you even imagine a bride who forgets her wedding dress? And then he says this on behalf of the Lord, yet for years, some of your Bibles will say for days without end, my people have forgotten me. Can you imagine a woman that forgets her jewelry or a bride that forgets her wedding dress, yet for days without end, you forget me? You remember the things that are important to you. You remember the things that matter the most to you, yet you forget me. It's as though I don't matter. You've forgotten me for years for days without end. 
Now, to forget someone is not simply to delete them from your contacts. It's not as though that you forgot their name or just forgot their birthday or forgot their address or forgot their phone number. When the Bible speaks about forgetting, it's not talking about forgetting information about someone. When the Bible talks about forgetting, and specifically when it talks about forgetting God, it's talking about going on with life today and looking forward to life tomorrow as though that person does not matter, is not important, is not recognized is not taken into account. So when the Bible says that God's people forget him for days without number, forget him for years, what the Bible is saying is that God's people live day in and day out as though he has no real significance or bearing on their life. The Bible will give different examples of what it looks like and different ways that this kind of forgetfulness impacts life. I'll just give you a few. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. We can forget God when we live today and look to tomorrow as though the grace he has shown us in the past doesn't matter. As though it has no bearing or significance upon our life. Jeremiah 13 says this, this is your lot. The portion that I've measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. As we forget God on the day in and day out, as though he doesn't matter to our life, one way that we tend to forget God is to live as though the truth of his word does not matter to us, doesn't have any bearing or significance upon us. Maybe even the most painful, if we just allow it to speak, is in Hosea 13, when the Lord says, when God's people had grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up Therefore, they forgot me. We forget God when we live as though he isn't enough for us. And we prefer his gifts over the giver. How do you feel when you realize you've been forgotten? This morning, Pastor James is going to take us to the heart of our forgetfulness. Specifically, he's going to take us to the heart of the forgetfulness that tends to mark our lives when we look at our today and look forward to our tomorrow and live with no reference to who God is and who we really are. When we look to our today and look to our tomorrow having forgotten God, to live as though he practically doesn't matter. And what Pastor James wants us to see is that that's not just sinful, it's evil, it's arrogant, and it's boastful. So like he's done before and he's so good at and we've become so familiar with, Pastor James wants to bring the reality of our forgetfulness out into the light. He wants to expose it for what it is. And I know it's gonna feel like we're doing it kicking and screaming sometimes. It gets so personal. James gets so personal with you and I. But he wants to expose our forgetfulness for what it is, that we might see it for what it is, that you and I might come to grips with the reality of our forgetfulness, that we might be able to humble ourselves before the Lord and look at today and tomorrow with hope. That's what he's after this morning. And so if you got it open, James 4, let's pick it up in verse 13. I'm gonna read through 17 and then we'll go take it a piece at a time and see what James has for us. James 4, verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist 
that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and yet fails to do it, for him, it's sin. This morning, James wants to expose our forgetfulness for what it is. And he goes to the most everyday and maybe even seemingly mundane reality of our everyday life, and that's the ordering of our time. How we look at our today and how we look forward to our tomorrows. How we think about the hours and the days that we have in this life. He gets down into the everyday reality of planning and of scheduling to expose how you and I approach our everyday with a forgetfulness. The forgetfulness as to who God is and as we'll see who we really are. And you can see it right there in verse 13, this practical reality. I mean, James talks about scheduling our today and tomorrow. He, he defines the place they're going to go into and such and such town and the time they're going to spend there and, and the goal that they have to make a profit. It's the kind of thing you and I do every day. In fact, our day in our life in the 21st century has been marked and probably is best known for a, a capacity to overschedule our life. We overcommit ourselves. And so planning and scheduling becomes almost manic in our life. What he's talking about here as an example of how we can see our forgetfulness on a day in and day out basis is something you and I are so familiar with. There isn't really a more relevant example for us. And so as some people have said, is James actually saying that the kind of planning and scheduling and goal setting that he's referring to here and that you and I do is actually bad? Is that the point of what he's saying? Is he saying we shouldn't do that? Not what he's saying at all. And I want you to, to, to clear that from your mind in the very beginning. In verses 13 and 14, James talks about how you and I ordinarily order our days. How you and I normally think about today and look forward to tomorrow. And then in verse 15, James actually says, instead, you ought to. So he's not against us planning and us scheduling and us setting goals. What James is saying, and I want you to catch this, what James is trying to say is that there is a way that you ordinarily think about this. There's a way you ordinarily look at today and look forward to tomorrow, and then there's a way that you should do it. There's a way that you do it, but then there's a way that you should do it. And what he's going to say in verse 16 is that the way we normally do it leaves us boasting in our arrogance. That all such boasting like that is ultimately evil. You see, what James is trying to expose for us to help us see about our own hearts and the way that we approach today and the way that we look at tomorrow is that you and I ordinarily approach our lives in a way that exposes an ignorance of reality. The way we ordinarily look at our today and look forward to our tomorrow, what James will say is that it expose, exposes in our hearts an ignorance of reality. Now you and I might say, I, I know exactly what it is I have to do this afternoon. I know exactly what it is I have to face tomorrow. There's nothing that's sneaking up on me. I know the difficult things ahead of me. Well, James is saying, well, you might be aware of that, but that's not what I'm talking about. There is a greater reality that the way that we look at our life and look at our days, there's a greater reality that you and I tend to live in ignorance towards. Listen to what he says. Look at this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, 
we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. See, for God's glory and for our greatest joy in him and the way that we go about looking at our life today and towards our tomorrows, James wants to give God's people a handful of reality checks. If you've got kids, you know sometimes you just have to give reality checks. They're prone to live in fantasy land. So James, for God's glory and our joy and our greatest good, he gives God's people a handful of reality checks. And the first reality check that James gives us this morning is that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. You are fundamentally ignorant when it comes to what tomorrow is going to bring. And here's the thing, you need to embrace that. That's actually very good news. To know that you are fundamentally ignorant of what tomorrow will bring should be good news to you because if you knew that tomorrow was going to bring pain, if you knew that tomorrow was going to bring trial, if you knew that tomorrow was going to bring difficulty, you would be tempted to respond in despair. I mean, do you remember at all being a child, having disobeyed maybe your mom, and your mom, rather than disciplining you in the moment, says, you know what, we're just gonna wait for dad to get home? Do you remember how you felt until dad got home? Especially if dad was away on an overnight trip? And you had to wait, and go to bed and wake up and wait. James, it's a good thing that you don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. Because if you knew it was going to be pain, you'd be prone to despair. But if you knew it was going to be prosperity, you'd be prone to presumption. You need to embrace the reality that you're fundamentally ignorant of what's going to happen next. Sam Storms, who's a fantastic theologian and pastor, he says, in God's wisdom, God has given you a memory that you might learn from your past success and mistakes. And in his wisdom, he's hidden the future from you in order that you might be compelled to trust in him wholly. See, James wants us to understand and come to grips with reality that contrary to what we might think and how we might live, we are actually ignorant of what is going to happen tomorrow. And the way that you and I tend to, to approach our today and look forward to our tomorrow is a way that tends to reflect we think we know what's going to happen. And James says you're wrong. You're actually ignorant. And that's a good thing. But secondly, there's, there's another reality check that he brings here and it's simply this. You and I, as we approach today and look forward to tomorrow, we tend to forget our frailty we tend to forget just how frail our, our life really is. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. When James says that, he's not speaking about the quality of our life. When James says that our life is but a mist, some of your translations will say is but a vapor, James is referring to the quantity of days the length of life. And some of you are familiar with this phrase from James. Maybe you didn't know where it came from, but I want you to understand, James is not a one-hit wonder on this thing. God has been saying this to his people throughout all of time. I mean, just listen to this. Job, Job himself, you love Job. Job says, 
Help me to remember that my life, it's a breath. May I remember that my days, Job 9, are swifter than a runner. Psalm 39, what a prayer. O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. What a prayer of humility. The psalmist recognizes that in his heart, he looks at his today and looks at his tomorrow with a forgetfulness of his frailty. Help me to know how fleeting I am because I forget. Behold, he says, you have made my days just a few hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all of mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about his days as a shadow. You and I approach our today and look forward to our tomorrows with an ignorance about the reality of our life. We fail to take into account the true reality of our frailty and we approach our days with a tremendous presumption. The reality of it is no one in this room knows that the next breath you are going to take is your last one. No one in here knows that if the next breath you take is gonna be the last one you take or whether or not you have another 10 years ahead. No one knows. Yet when we approach our today and we look forward to our tomorrows, we tend to be presumptuous with the days that we have on this earth. And so James wants us to come to grips with the true reality, not only of our ignorance and our frailty, but the true reality that every single breath we take on this earth, the one you just took, and if God wills, the one that you're about to take, they're all gifts of God's grace. They're all gifts of God's grace. Listen to what James says in verse 15. Instead, instead of looking at your today and planning for your tomorrows as though you had a presumption about what was going to actually happen, as though you could control at all what was going to happen the next day, as if you had any level of sovereignty over the breath you take and what you do, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. See, James isn't saying that the kind of planning he's referring to is bad. Most of us, we couldn't function without a plan. And those of us who aren't great at planning, we just tell you we're doing okay. We're really not. We all need some kind of order to our life. And we all think about how we can order our days and, and order our weeks. And we, we all look at our days like this. James isn't saying it's wrong to plan. What James is actually warning us against is an everyday view of our today and tomorrow that simply forgets God. It doesn't acknowledge his sovereign overruling of our life. We look at our today and we plan for our tomorrows as though we know what they hold and as though tomorrow is a guarantee in and of itself. See, when James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. What he is saying is that the humility that humbles itself before God, the humility that he's just talked about in chapter four that draws near to God, knowing that draw, God draws near to him, the humility that brings us to a repentance of our sin, a humility that humbles itself before God, recognizes in this life a true reality of who we are and a true reality of who God is. When James says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or we'll do that, James isn't trying to give us another phrase that we're supposed to slip into our conversation with each other that will baptize whatever plan it is we're trying to achieve. James isn't saying, go about the way that you're thinking about today and planning for tomorrow, but when you're done, say, if God wills, and then it will all be okay. 
He's not giving us phrasing. What James is after is a worldview. It's a mindset. It's a condition and a surrender of the heart that recognizes the true reality of life, that recognizes our fundamental ignorance and our fundamental frailty and God's overruling providential sovereignty over every aspect of life. This, if the Lord wills, is a way that we're supposed to approach our days. It's a way that we're supposed to see the days that we have and look forward to the days that God may give us. It's not lingo that we can use to excuse decisions that we make because you know we do that with each other. God told me to say this or God told me to do this and I'll say it that way because then I don't have to take responsibility for what I did. That's a whole other sermon. He's not giving us lingo to just slip into what we do. What James is trying to communicate, what he's trying to expose, what he wants God's people to see is that there is meant to be a way that we view our life, a way that we view today, a way that we look forward to tomorrow that recognizes who we are and who God is. Let me defer to someone much smarter. John Piper said that God created us not just to do things and go places with our bodies, but to have a certain attitude and conviction and verbal description that reflects the truth. There's a way that we're supposed to think that's supposed to shape the way we speak that will then alter the way that we live, is what he's saying. There's a true view of life and a true view of God. God means for the truth about himself and about his providential and sovereign control over all of life to be known and felt and spoken as a part of our reason for being. See, James isn't trying to get us to say, hey, we should say if the Lord wills when we make our plans for this week and when we make our plans for next week. What James is trying to help us to see and bring into the light is that the way we think about today and the way that we think about tomorrow and what shapes the way we understand our life today and what shapes the way we approach our days tomorrow matters a great deal to God. If the Lord wills reflects a surrender of heart and an awareness of reality. It's an understanding that how we approach and think about what we do today and what we may do tomorrow and how we order the life that God has given us and how we steward the breath and the gifts and the talents he's given us matters a great deal to him as much if not more than how we then order that time and go about that. It matters. And so by implication, James means for God's people to just slow down for a second. And ask yourself, does a, does a true view of life shape the way I think and speak about my plans? Does a true view of who I really am and who God really is shape the way I think about my today and look forward to my tomorrow and speak about it? Because here's the reality. Having a true view of who I am and who God is, it may not change the actual plans you make. You may still make the exact same plans, but here's the deal. It will fundamentally alter the way you think about them and speak about them and go about them. And that's what James is after. James isn't trying to create a new calendar system for God's people to order their day and schedule their hours and do all of that. James is after a fundamental reality in the heart and a way of thinking and understanding. Your plans might on paper be the exact same, but the way you think about them the way you approach them, the way you speak about them, and the way you go about them will be fundamentally different. Jonathan Edwards, he, he used to get up in the morning 
And, you know, because he was alive, you know, before he died. That was a strange phrasing, wasn't it? He'd get up in the morning and, and sometimes he would say to himself, I must remember this, that everything I enjoy today, which is better than hell, is strictly by the mercy and gracious upholding power of God. Do you realize how different your attitude towards life would go if you actually believed that today and believed it tomorrow? And if God wills for you, believe it the next day? If you actually looked at your life right now, where you're sitting, right here, right now, and said, it's all of grace. If God actually gave me what I deserved, I'd be destroyed. I'd be wiped out. It's only by God's grace I'm actually taking the breath I'm taking right now. If God wills, I live. It's only by his will. And it's only by his grace. See, James isn't the first person to deal with this self-referential way of ordering our days, this self-centered way of of looking at today and planning for tomorrow, this idea of of centering all of our life around what we can do and how we're going to go about doing it, reflecting this kind of self-sovereign arrogance that you and I tend to. James isn't the first one to deal with this. You know, Jesus dealt with this too. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a parable to the people listening. He said, there was the land of a rich man that produced plentiful And the man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And the man said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'm going to store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night your soul is going to be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, fundamentally, what was the problem with the man in the parable? Was the parable some kind of rebuke against his success? Against his land being plentiful? No. Was he criticized for shady business dealings? No. The problem with the man in the parable was a self-centered and self-referential perspective on life. A view of today and tomorrow that failed to acknowledge God's providential sovereignty over everything. One commentator actually said, the man in the parable, much like you and I, consults only with himself, determines his future plans solely on the basis of how it will affect him, and conceives of his possessions as of wholly his own. You and I, are fundamentally ignorant of what tomorrow is going to hold. You and I are not guaranteed the next breath that we take. God means for us to not just know with our minds, but to live and to be shaped by the reality that everything, including the next breath we take, is solely due to nothing but his grace. And that is meant to be what shapes the way that we look at our today and look forward to our tomorrows. This is what James is trying to expose. But there's something else. There's another reality check that James has for God's people and it's important. That's simply this, when we forget God, 
This living with a self-centered, self-referential, self-sovereign approach to today and tomorrow. It's a lot worse than we actually think it is. Verse 16, James says, as it is, so living, having forgotten God, living with an ignorance of reality, failing to acknowledge and be shaped by our ignorance and our frailty and God's sovereignty and God's grace and mercy, as it is, we boast in our arrogance and all such boasting is evil. We arrogantly presume that we're the masters of our own time and history. Arrogantly presuming upon today and arrogantly presuming upon tomorrow. This kind of approach to the way we see our life is the opposite of recognizing that everything, everything, down to the very next breath you take is nothing but mercy. See, what happens is we begin to presume that not just our next breath, but our plans this afternoon, our plans tomorrow, the way we're going to go about doing life is an inalienable right rather than a gift of grace. When we live forgetting God, when we become functional and practical atheists in our approach today and our looking forward to tomorrow, we do nothing but ultimately boast. Boast in our own arrogance. And James says, you've got to see that this is nothing but evil. It's out of step with reality. It's out of step with who you really are. It's out of step with who God really is. It's out of step with the gospel itself. So James says in verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. And he's speaking on multiple levels here with this. For whoever knows the right thing to do, he's already told us right here the right thing to do, and that's to recognize that today and tomorrow, if God wills, is nothing but an act of mercy and grace. It's to recognize my frailty and my ignorance and God's sovereign providential control over life and allow that to shape the way I approach today and look tomorrow and speak about my life and order my time and order my days. He's told me what I ought to do, but if I look in the mirror and I walk away unchanged, Knowing what I ought to do, it's still sin. And you and I like to get out from under the weight of sin by trying to recategorize it. I mean, if we can make sin nothing but a list of words we're not supposed to say, a list of things we're not supposed to watch, a list of actions we're not supposed to do, then we think we can get out from under the weight of what it really is when the Bible is constantly taking us back to the reality that when we get to the heart of sin, we're getting to the heart of what controls our heart. We're getting down to what's shaping our affections, what's animating and motivating our desires. And James is trying to drag out into the light this sense of self-sovereignty that each of us have in our heart that tends to govern the way we approach today and look towards tomorrow. And James says, you who know what you ought to do and fail to do it, it's sin. Listen, the way that we approach our life the way that we look at our today and we look to our tomorrow. Why don't you just think for a moment about the implications. If you and I think about our today and we look towards tomorrow and begin to make plans 
And what shapes the way we look at today and what shapes the way we plan for tomorrow is no different than the way the world around us looks at their today and plans for their tomorrow. If the, if the, things are, if the schedules and the plans are motivated by the same things, what does it actually say about our faith in Christ? Seems so innocuous, doesn't it? It's just scheduling and planning. But if the way that you and I think about today and look forward to tomorrow and approach the way we steward the time that God gives us, the breath that he gives us, the gifts that he gives us, the talents that he gives us, if we plan our today and we plan our tomorrow around the same priorities and motives and perspectives as the world around us, what does it say about Christ and what does it say about the gospel? See, a right understanding of who we are in the eyes of who God is and who he's made us to be shapes the way we're meant to look with the time that we have. It's meant to impact the way that we not just look at the time that we have, and so it impacts the way we speak about it and the way that we prioritize it and the way that we go about it. Let me try to be even more specific for you. Sam Alberry, he's a pastor in London. He speaks a little bit to what this looks like when we don't do what we know we ought to do and rather do what we want to do and what that means in light of what James is saying. He's gonna get very specific here. He says when it comes to our planning, you and I can very quickly become practical atheists. Our planning revolves around us. Our self-important agendas are uppermost in our thinking. But if we know God, we should know the good we should be doing. God's shown it to us. So on one level, God has shown us how we're supposed to see our today and look at our tomorrow in light of who he is and who we are. But now he's gonna get specific in other things that God has shown us that we ought to be doing the priorities and his purposes that ought to be reflected in our life. Listen to what he says. At this point, when God's shown us what we ought to be doing and we don't do it, to say that my schedule is too full is actually sin. James in verse 17 of chapter four says, to not make time and space for the good that God has shown us that we ought to be doing is actually sin. So what does that look like in very close reality, Albury says? Maybe, and he's just gonna give some examples. Maybe, we're not making time to meet with God's people as a priority in our life. We just say things are too busy. Life's a bit too manic right now. Maybe we're not spending time daily in prayer and in God's word, consciously enjoying the presence of God, drawing near to him, as James was saying earlier in chapter four. I've got too many other things going on at the moment. Maybe when things calm down a little bit, I can get to that. Perhaps we know that deep down we're not serving the people that God has placed around us. We're not giving them as we ought to be. And so our spouse and our kids are getting the bare scraps of our time. Whatever it is, so he's just giving examples. Whatever it is when you and I approach our day with this self-centered, self-referential orientation to our time today and our time tomorrow, Alberry says it simply reflects sin in the way that we look at it. You and I have already made something else our greatest priority and planned our life around that. We've not reflected the purposes of God. We're not being driven by what matters most to him that he's revealed to us already, but by what matters most to us. And so once again, our worldly desires have exposed the shallowness of our faith. By the time we try to quote, fit some Christian stuff in, there's no room for it. 
And so we're self-importantly talking about our next big business trip or vacation and all that's coming out of our mouth is evil boasting about arrogant plans. The good we ought to be doing is left undone. And that state of affairs, he says, is sin. See, for, for, for God's glory and for our greatest good, for our greatest joy in this life, Pastor James is trying to expose for us the reality of our forgetfulness. The question is, can you see it in yourself? Can you begin to see where you live and plan day in and day out for today and tomorrow yet are disconnected from reality? Not the reality of the tasks assigned to you, but from the reality of who you are and who God is, and how we're meant to approach and steward and think about the days that he's given us. Do you see it? And yet, if you do, if you begin to see the forgetfulness in your own heart with the way you think about your life, and you look at today and look forward to tomorrow, where do you go when you see it? What do you begin to do when you're made aware of your own forgetfulness? Oh, praise God, James has already dealt with that too. James chapter four, verse five, do you suppose that it's of no purpose that the scripture says that God yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us? Remember, God is jealous not only for his glory in you, but for your joy in him. He has a zeal for you to have the most satisfaction that he has created for you to have, and it's only found in him, which is why James says, he, God, gives more grace Therefore, when you are made aware of your forgetfulness, you come face to face with the reality of that sin, James says, humble yourself. God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself. Draw near. I must remember, like Edwards said, that everything I enjoy today, which is better than hell, is strictly by the mercy and gracious upholding power of God. It's all grace. He yearns jealously for his glory and your joy. When you come face to face with your forgetfulness, where do you go? What do you do? Friends, we're meant to go back to the God who continues to give more grace who has already told his people, regardless of their forgetfulness of him, he has made a way to never forget them. The prophet Isaiah said, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? As incomprehensible as that seems, Isaiah says, even these may actually forget. But speaking of the Lord, he said, I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. How can God not forget us? How in the midst of our ongoing forgetfulness of him, our forsaking of him, how could he continue to be a God of more grace to us? That's the beauty of the gospel. Because on the cross, God the Father forsook his son in our place. Jesus, the, the son of God, suffered what you and I deserve for our forgetfulness of God. He received what you and I should receive for our forgetfulness and forsaking of God. 
See, the glory of the gospel we're reminded of as we draw near to God in humility when we come face to face with our forgetfulness is that he forsook his son so that he would never forget us. It's the beauty of grace because Jesus has made a way for us to be united with the Father, so much so the Father's promise to his people of never forgetting them, because of that truth, because of that promise, because of his grace, you and I can know what it is today and tomorrow to not forget God, to have our hearts shaped again by his mercy, to live day in and day out with a clear view of reality. When we come face to face with our forgetfulness of God, it's to the cross of Christ that we run. It's to the gospel where we're made aware of our forgetfulness. We recognize that it was our forgetfulness that put him on the cross and we're reminded again that it's the sacrifice of Jesus as our substitute for our sin, our forgetfulness, in our place for our sin that made a way for God to remember us and never forget us. This morning, it's to that sacrifice and to that gift of grace that we get to remember and run this morning as we receive communion together. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word before we respond by receiving communion, remembering, as God's people, the sacrifice of Jesus in our place for our sin. We're going to have a chance to tangibly remember Jesus' body broken, his blood shed, so that those of you who have, by the grace of God, believed upon Jesus as your Savior, you can be reminded again this morning as you receive communion that you have not, you will not, and you cannot be forgotten by God. What a sweet grace that is to remember this morning when you and I know how easy it is for us to go in and out of our day in and day out lives having forgotten Him. This morning as the musicians play, and you prepare to come forward as followers of Christ, I want you to prepare to come forward and remember as you receive communion. It's all, it's all of grace. It's all a gift of mercy. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we want you to know we're so happy that you're here. We're glad that you're here. We want you to know that any of us would love to help you better understand who Jesus is and the difference that that is meant to make for your life. And so this morning, after we reflect for a couple of minutes and and we're called forward to receive communion, I just want to encourage you to stay where you are. I don't want you to feel compelled this morning to, to follow into the crowd and to take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. This morning, what's most important is for you is for you to deal with God and let him deal with you. What's most important for you this morning is to receive the forgiveness that comes from God by faith in his son. There are a couple prayers that are in your guide that you got on your way in that may help you during that time. But then after we come forward and receive communion, we'll sing, we'll make much of God and then be sent out from here to be his people. So let me pray for us and and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the exposing truth that you give us through, through your servant, James. It's not always comfortable. It's not always easy but we know because of who you are, it's for your glory and it's for our greatest good. This morning, help every heart in here. Help every heart in here by your spirit. Help us to see where we have forgotten you in our day in and day out. Lord, we want as your people to recognize not only our ignorance and the frailty of our life, we want to recognize your sovereign and good purposes for all of life. We don't want to live our days any longer oriented around our desires 
and around our agendas. Lord, we don't want to be a people that have forgotten you. So Lord, we ask that you would do the miracle that only you can do in our hearts this morning. Bring us to a place of surrender and humility before you. Help us to number our days, to know your goodness and to know your grace. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.